Before I begin the talk, I wanted just to put in a plug for the sandwich retreat. Uh, it's something we've been doing for, I don't know, more than probably 15 years, maybe very close to the beginning of the center, and it happens once a year, and Larry, Narayan, and myself lead that retreat. It's, it's a very powerful form of practice. Um, sometimes people are a little intimidated to take it on. Uh, so we do allow partials, but you have to check with the office. Um, but it's a very powerful form where we sit together in silence and you know, there are interviews and talks on the weekend and then every night we get together at 6.30 so people do their thing during the weekdays, do their work thing and we take up a mindfulness theme or a theme around practice and we really take it into our everyday life and then we get back in the evening practice together and break down into small groups uh, and talk about it and explore it and then we finish up with another silent uh, weekend. So um, just wanted to encourage you, if you're so inclined, uh, if you feel like you'd like to do a retreat here sometime, uh, you could look at this uh, as a possibility. And if you can only do some of it, you could call the office to see what the guidelines are around partials, because there are certain guidelines. But I just wanted to mention that. So tonight, um, the title has a bit of a mystery in it before thinking. And that's a borrowed phrase uh, from a Zen master that I spent a couple years practicing with, um, Sung San. Uh, and he used to always talk about before thinking mind. Um, and so tonight I'd like to talk about that some, kind of the Vipassana version of uh, before thinking. And of course there are many different descriptions of this mind that is before thinking. Um, but very much uh, the path that we're on here, the path of dharma, the path of awareness, is very much um, what we're doing is we're training our minds and engaging in this process where uh, we're beginning slowly but surely to unburden our hearts and uh, unburden our minds. And what we're unburdening is the limitations and the conflict and the sorrow uh, that comes with having our minds be very conditioned. When we're ruled by conditioned thinking, it creates suffering. And the direction practice goes in is it moves from this kind of enslavement to the conditioned thinking mind to in a direction of the unconditioned. Moving from the conditioned to the unconditioned, that is towards peace and inner freedom, inner freedom of the unconditioned. So when Sun Sanim or Sung San says, before thinking, that's what he's pointing to, is this unconditioned mind, before thinking. Different descriptions of before thinking are it's the clear mind, the original mind. Ryan gave a talk last month, I think, on don't know mind, same thing, don't know mind, another way of saying it. I'll probably repeat a lot of things that she said, maybe in a bit of a different way. Um, it's the self-nature, true nature, Buddha nature. Whenever you hear those phrases, that's what it's pointing to. Um, it's pointing to the unconditioned. Um, awareness is another description of it, pure awareness. Uh, in Theravadan circles, we talk about the unconditioned, Nibbana. The realization of non-grasping, it's the unconditioned. And so I'd like to go through and talk a little bit about the thinking mind, kind of point out some of the limitations of uh, a mind that is very conditioned, 
to think in certain ways. And then we'll also talk a lot about the, well, I'll talk some anyways about the unconditioned. Well, certainly one of the most powerful insights, and I think this is an insight that can be kind of disturbing, uh, especially early on in practice, is that when we begin to sit with ourselves and pay attention, and we begin to pay attention first to the body, you know, if you're doing a Vipassana practice, you start with the body and the breathing, and then pretty soon the instructions expand to begin to include other aspects of our experience, and certainly pretty soon what we're doing is we're also practicing uh, being mindful of thinking, you know, being mindful of different mind states or emotions that might be arising, being more mindful of our reactions that we have, whether it's clinging reactions or aversive reactions, um, being mindful of moods, you know, different moods that we go through. And so what we begin to do is we begin to include the, the whole field of what our experience is, the body, the mind, sounds, the environment, uh, the world that we're living in. In other words, what we're doing is we're training ourselves to be present and to take a look directly at our experience. And what we often discover when we start paying attention, and I think this is, I don't think I've ever met anybody that didn't uh, make this discovery at some point or another, and sometimes it happens pretty quickly, um, which is um, just how relentless our thinking minds are. You know, they are relentless. You know, it seems like when we begin to sit with ourselves, the thinking just never stops. You know, it's just, we're just constantly, it's actually quite exhausting right, when you think about it. The constant churning and churning and churning of thoughts, and many of the thoughts go nowhere. You know, they, that's another insight that we have is just how repetitive uh, the thinking is. Same thought. Over same dialogue, over and over, same song, over and over again, same resistance, boredom, over and over again. And sometimes when we begin to sit, we actually have pretty good self-esteem. Uh, you know, we think pretty highly of ourselves sometimes. And then we start sitting and it kind of drops. Uh, because what, what we've been rewarded for in the past, of course, all of us are rewarded for our thinking, and it's thinking is strongly encouraged. And we'll get into... Um, some of the benefits of thinking, but we're going to talk about <laughs> the limitations first to kind of convince you that uh, there's another way here. Um, but uh, what we begin to do is we begin to get in touch, you know, with like that habitual nature, and what we begin to see is patterns, you know, the way the mind works. You know, this, this is a process, this is a practice of self-knowing, getting to know yourself, seeing how the mind and how the body works in a very direct way. And so some of the ways that our thinking works. Um, first of all, our thinking is very judgmental, you know, very often. You know, we're constantly judging our experiences. You know, we're constantly judging our bodies as good or bad. We're constantly judging our thoughts as good or bad. You know, we're constantly judging the people that we encounter as good and bad. The mind is extremely judgmental. And certainly one thing we discover often is that a lot of those judgments are pointed towards ourselves. And oftentimes when people come into practice, one of the discoveries they make is just how self-condemning, you know, how blaming, how self-condemning one is. Okay. What we also discover is that the, the mind almost never ceases to comment, you know, to comment on what's going on, uh, to describe our experience, you know, to, just, to be with the breathing, and then to describe, well, that's shallow, that's deep, that's long, that's short, 
that's a good breath, that's not a good breath, that breath is stopping. So there's this endless describing of our experiences. Um, there's interpreting. Uh, around here, in this culture of uh, New England, Massachusetts, there's this incessant analyzing uh, that goes on. I'm hoping that there are other parts of the country that don't obsess quite as much as us, but uh, we do do a lot of analyzing and figuring out and problem solving, and we spend an enormous amount of our time doing that. Uh, we also spend a lot of time evaluating and comparing. It's relentless, that, that pattern of always evaluating how we're doing or how somebody else is doing. Or We often, every sitting, we torment ourselves uh, with evaluating that sitting. That was a good sitting. No, that wasn't such a good sitting. That was a really good sitting. <laughs> and then the next sitting, nah, I've lost it. I've lost it. I've got to get it back. I've got to get that good sitting back. When I first started practicing, it was really good. Now, it's no good. You know, I'm thinking more. So that evaluating mind. And then comparing yourself to other yogis. You know, all you have to do is sit on a cushion and be quiet. We do this outside of this setting, too, uh, for sure. But uh, when you sit, you can see the mind's comparing yourself to the person next to you. If you move, you're comparing yourself to the person who's sitting really still. If your mind is thinking and wandering in fantasy, well, then probably the person next to you isn't doing that. And what I discover is most people are doing that. Uh, so comparing is, is pretty... Um, distorted quite often. We don't actually know what other people's experiences are. But it doesn't stop us from comparing. We also label and name things. And that's deep. You know, that's perception in a way, right? We, we have an experience and then immediately we label it or name it. You know, and that's a subtle form of thinking. But it's very conditioned in our minds. In fact, it's very difficult sometimes to experience something without that perception. You know, without that naming or that labeling happen. It's, it's, it's um, useful, actually, to practice with that kind of thinking, uh, that kind of naming and labeling, to see if it's possible to let it go. Um, and one practice that we teach here at the center, sometimes I offer this practice, which is the practice of listening, you know, just simply being, bringing awareness to the listening process. And why that's sometimes a very useful practice is because one is if we say, listen to the street sounds, we can... If we're sitting in meditation and our attention is drawn to sounds in the street, we can hear immediately, well, that's that label of car driving by. You know? But if it's a sustained sound, you can kind of see that label, drop the label, and then just rest the awareness on the essence of the sound, the actual qualities of the sounds itself, free of any labels, free of any ideas. You know? It's very helpful to begin to see that there are different levels of experience. And so often we're caught on the level of appearance which is conditioned by our names and labels. Another thing that we do, uh, I know I do this a lot actually, uh, is we draw conclusions. You know, we draw conclusions. You know, we, we see something, we, we, we're very attached often to our views and opinions. You know, our thinking has a lot to do with our attachment to views and opinions. And we draw conclusions about who we are. You know, it's very insidious actually. We learn, you know, we're conditioned to think about ourselves in certain ways. And that's a burden. It burdens us because it's very difficult to open to something new or to move more fully in the present moment, into the present moment, because of some idea that we might have about ourselves. You know, you can see this with children. You know, I've had, I have nieces and nephews and I've watched them grow up. And, you know, early on, 
the, the, the ideas about who they are, the conclusions, they're not so firm. But you can see as they move into adolescence, in middle school, in, in high school, how those ideas about who they are, I'm not good at math, I can't do it. You know, lots of, I'm not athletic. You know, they, people draw conclusions about who they are. And through Dharma practice, what we do is on a very profound level, begin to let go of that burden of conclusions. In fact, what we're doing, very much so, is this journey into the unknown. Sometimes it's scary, but ultimately it's freeing. So in many ways, those are the, those are uh, just some pretty quick descriptions of the activities of the mind, of how the mind functions so often. Um, and it, you know, it's not to say that evaluating, comparing is a bad thing, or any of these thoughts are are inherently harmful in that sense. You know, but oftentimes what they're what they're conditioned, uh, and we're very attached to these ideas. We're very attached to thoughts. And it's really the attachment to the thinking that's creating the suffering. You know, it's the attachment. It's the identification with those thoughts. It's the taking those thoughts as self that create an enormous amount of suffering for, for us. So as we begin to pay attention to our thoughts and, and as we begin to bring mindfulness to thoughts, we begin to see the process nature of our thinking. In other words, we begin to see that thoughts are coming and going all the time. You know, they're coming and going all the time. We might know that intellectually, you know, but we actually begin to see it in a very direct way. We see our reactions arise and pass away. We see our thinking, our evaluating, our comparing. They, they, all these thoughts arise under certain conditions, but they also disappear. They're very slippery. In fact, they're so slippery that being mindful of thoughts is very challenging. They're so insubstantial. You know, that as soon as we bring mindfulness to them, you can see they change, they disappear. Another thought might arise in place of it, but it's very ethereal. They just, they're, they're, there's not, when we're caught in them, or preoccupied in them, you know, there's a sense of solidity to them, a sense of reality, a lasting reality to them. But when we begin to see their process nature, the mind develops a bit more balance. It starts not identifying with those passing thoughts or ideas or emotions, and it begins to relax. You know, it creates a lot of conflict and pain when we identify with certain states of mind or thoughts. It creates an enormous amount of suffering. So when we begin to not identify with them so much by paying attention, the mind begins to relax. We begin to, to experience some kind of space around the thoughts. You know, instead of the mind being totally cluttered, you know, totally congested, with one thought after the next, after the next, after the next, and constantly us being caught in that world, when we begin to see the process nature, in other words, we begin to bring awareness, that kind of intelligence I'm going to be talking about, when we bring awareness to thoughts, we begin to see the bigger picture. Yeah. We begin in some ways to see the impersonal nature of thoughts. That they rise, they express themselves, and they change, and we can't even control those thoughts yet we often claim them to be who we are. So as we begin to let go of this identification, we begin to relax more and settle more deeply into the here and now. 
Because when we're caught or preoccupied in this world of thought, where these thoughts take us is into the future. That's another insight that we have when we begin to sit with ourselves, is that they constantly take us into the world of speculation, planning, worrying, thinking about the future, or constantly taking us back into a journey into the past, you know, into memories and thoughts and dialogues we've had in the past and all sorts of impressions in the mind surface. Okay, we get caught in those thoughts and in those memories. So when we begin to develop this capacity to be more mindful and to be more present, um, then we begin to experience this inner space. And now we're beginning to move. The mind is beginning to free itself up of this tremendous limitation of just being caught by our conditioned thinking into something else, something new, another kind of intelligence, another kind of power that's within us. You know, thought is extremely powerful. It's also very limited, like I said, in terms of discovering the new. It's very limited, no doubt about it. It's very, very limited, but it's also extremely powerful. Because when we get caught by thought, and we can see this, just take a look at the world that we're living in. You know, actions are conditioned by thought. You know, actions are conditioned by thought. And if you look at the state of the world, it's because of the nature of thought. It's pe- people are identified and caught in that world of thought. So as we begin to relax more and bring more awareness to the here and now, um, we begin to discover this power of awareness. You know, we begin to discover we begin to move, we begin to incline the mind in the direction of the unconditioned. So we can see the busyness of thought very quickly when we start paying attention. Awareness is different. Okay? The power of awareness is different. Mm-hmm. It's innate. Okay? It's innate, it's unchanging. Okay? It's unchanging. It's always there. It's silent. Okay? It's silent. It's free of preconceptions. Completely, 100% free of preconceptions. Okay? That's what we mean by silent. Silent doesn't mean that there's no thoughts. When we talk about the silence of awareness, we're not talking about the absence of thoughts. We're talking about the absence of preconceptions about an experience. There are no conclusions. Okay, awareness doesn't make a conclusion. In fact, very much when we go into awareness, what we discover is that that power allows us to, to, it brings a quality to the mind that allows us not to know, not to draw conclusions. So it's completely open in that sense. All-inclusive. Doesn't create a sense of separation. You know, it doesn't create the sense of subject and object. Mm-hmm. It's bigger than that. It doesn't impose names or labels on experience. It's spacious. There's an absence of conflict in the unconditioned. Okay, it's peace. Another way of describing the unconditioned is peace. The absence of conflict within. And because awareness doesn't arise or pass away, like thought. Remember, thought is endlessly arising and passing away, changing. 
what we discover in awareness is the timeless. The timeless. And of course, the timeless is before thinking. Let me read something from Sungsan. Remember, another word up before thinking is clear mind. Clear mind is like the full moon in the sky. Sometimes clouds come and cover it, but the moon is always behind them. Clouds go away, then the moon shines brightly. So don't worry about the clear mind. It is always there. When thinking comes, behind it is clear mind. When thinking goes, there is only clear mind. Thinking comes and goes, comes and goes. You must not be attached to the coming or the going. And so it's very much our attachment and identification with thoughts that cloud our discovering awareness. And so when we begin to see into the nature of thought, we're beginning to see behind the thoughts, before the thoughts, where the thoughts arise. Another quality of this of the unconditioned is this mirror-like quality. It's like a mirror. It doesn't add or subtract from experience. It just reflects. It just reflects things as they are. Our thinking is always interpreting, always evaluating, always comparing, always imposing shoulds and shouldn'ts, ideas about good, ideas about bad. Awareness doesn't do that. It's unburdened by that. That's not its nature. That's the nature of thinking. That's the nature of conditioned thinking. But the nature of awareness is that it's very much like a mirror. It doesn't add, subtract, or even interpret the experience. One aspect of, uh, one very significant aspect of this movement from suffering to freedom to liberation is this uh, letting go of this incessant, relentless, again, self-referentiality. This incessant self-referentiality. What do I mean by that? Well, pay attention to the mind sometime. Pay attention to one's thoughts. Who's the main character in those thoughts? Who's me. Right. Who's the player? It's the little me, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the main character. See how many thoughts you have that don't have anything to do with you. We call those selfless thoughts. Yeah, we don't have too many of them, actually. Uh, Without awareness, anyways, we don't. You know, we're conditioned to think about ourselves. We are the center of the universe in the world of thought. And that is a very deep illusion in the mind. We are not the center of the universe. But if we listen to our thoughts, we are. You know, everything that happens to us is a great drama. You know, it's tragic, it's dramatic, uh, it's really crucial. 
you know, that everything unfolds the way we want it to unfold. Okay? So obviously our thinking convinces us that we're the center. You know, it's all about us. No need to be embarrassed by that fact. Uh, fact is, that's how our thinking works. Uh, it is really about self. And so, one thing our thoughts do is, as we pay attention more, we begin to see how we construct the self through our thinking. You know, we construct the self through thinking. We also construct the other through our thinking. And we're very convinced about the reality of those constructions. Whereas, awareness, the unconditioned. In the light of awareness, one engages in a process of forgetting the self. It's not obliterating the self, it's not getting rid of the self, it's none of the above. It's forgetting the self. Through awareness, we just forget the self. The self begins to drop away. We begin to let go of this tremendous burden of self-referentiality. In fact, the Chan Master that I study with, his definition of suffering is self-referentiality. Think about that. That's really an interesting description of suffering. And of course, what that means is freedom is non-self, you know, or not self-referentiality. That freedom uh, to live in the now and not always be focused or obsessed or thinking about oneself always seeing the world through our conditioned perceptions. So this process of forgetting the self. Another Zen master describes the enlightened mind. It's just that. It's a process of knowing oneself, but in the process of knowing oneself, one forgets oneself. In knowing and paying attention to oneself, as the awareness develops, we begin to forget ourselves doesn't mean that we don't take care of ourselves. But our experience of the here and now is very different in awareness. We also begin in practice, as practice deepens, we begin to drop the burden of the observer. And sometimes the observer tends to especially people who have been practicing for a while and the mind is getting quiet. And one thing that, one insight that comes up and one awareness that comes up is uh, this increasing awareness of the observer, observing the experience. And of course the observer has its own opinions and views and uh, comments and interpretations. Uh, But as we develop more awareness, the observer begins to lose its power. You know, as we begin to forget the self, we begin to actually forget the observer. There's just observing. There's not that fixed point that's watching. There's that dropping away of self-consciousness that happens. Sometimes early in practice, especially in the first few years, practice can seem to almost increase one's self-consciousness. You know, like one becomes very self-conscious of what one is doing through a mindfulness practice sometimes. But that's just an initial phase. That's just the initial phase. That phase changes as we develop our practice and mature, and as we develop this ability to relax more in the present. You know, this forgetting the self is really a process of relaxing. You know, that's what's so wonderful about it. It's not scary. You know, the idea of forgetting yourself or losing yourself can be, you know, terrifying. But the actuality of it is that it leads to a great deal of relaxation in the mind. 
because there's nothing to defend. There's nothing to build up. So even though this clear mind is always there, it's always present, this mind that's before thinking, the end condition, even though it's there within all of us, it doesn't mean that we know it. It doesn't mean that we're aware of it. In fact, for most of us, you know, sometimes we have moments you know, where we recognize it, we see it, we experience it. We drop into it. But basically, the mind, there are lots of obscurations in the mind. Kind of those clouds. We get caught in those clouds. We get caught in the clouds of the minds. And so we don't recognize it. We uh, We don't gain access to this power that's within us. And we don't gain access to it through thinking. When I began to practice, it was, it was my early 20s, and I had a lot of things going against me, you know, my mind, first of all, um, and a tremendous amount of confusion and fear in my mind, very contracted, very tight, lots of suffering. But I had one thing going, which really served me well through a number of years of hard work on the cushion and in practice in general which is I realized I wasn't going to be able to think my way out of suffering. I wasn't going to be able to rely on my thinking mind to do it. And I don't really know exactly why I had that insight or that conviction. I just did. But it served me very well because what I realized was is I needed to cultivate another approach to life. Because what it seemed to me, at the time anyways, is that my thinking was very circular. And that the more I thought and tried to figure out my problems and tried to figure out what I needed to do or what what I could avoid or what I could hold on to and just kept analyzing and figuring out and all of that, the hole was getting deeper. You know, the hole was getting deeper. I wasn't really moving towards freedom. There wasn't a lightening of the heart. And I realized that somewhere along the way and said, okay, I need to take another approach. And when I first heard the Dharma, you know, in a language that I could understand anyways. It was like a light going off. It was like, this was it. You know, I was going to try this way, which is not to try to figure out and analyze my suffering. Not that there's something wrong with it, all of that. But when you rely solely on that, it's very limited. Okay? What I decided to do was, okay, I'm just going to try to be mindful. I'm just going to try to pay attention bring this silent attention to my experience. Instead of thinking about my experience, I was going to try to be mindful, and when I found myself thinking, I was going to try to be mindful of that thinking. And I remember making this, um, which kind of made my life a little bit difficult, Uh, I made this um, commitment to myself that I was never going to allow myself to get involved in planning. Uh, I was going to take the planning mind as an object of mindfulness. And if you work with mind planning in a mindful way, what you see oftentimes is as soon as you become mindful that you're planning, it kind of drops away. You, get, you drop that fantasy. So I was watching for years 
this kind of life that was unfolding without a lot of planning going on. Every time I was planning, I'd just be mindful of planning, it would disappear, I'd go back to the breathing, whatever it was. Um, and, you know, it really just reflects the sense that something new had to be done. You know? and, th and that's why practice takes so much patience, is because when you sit here tonight, or when you sit with a group, or you sit on your own, and you do this work, um, it's very different than what we're used to. You know, we're really asking a lot of ourselves. And it takes a great deal of patience. Tremendous amount of patience and courage. And certainly one area that we're working on as we train ourselves to, to discover this unconditioned is self-acceptance. Inquiry. Let me read you something. This is something that resonates with most practitioners that I've talked to anyways. The first steps in self-acceptance are not all that pleasant. For, for what one sees is not a happy sight. One needs all the courage to go further. What helps is silence. Look at yourself in total silence. Do not describe yourself. Look at, look at the being you believe you are and remember, you are not what you see. This is I this I am not, what am I, is the movement of self-inquiry. This I am not, what am I? See? The mind is conditioned to take appearance, and all these conditioned thoughts as self, as real. Okay. So this process that we're engaged in, it requires this deep inquiry and silence. And fortunately, we all have that capacity to cultivate silence, more inner silence in our life. And the main vehicle for that is mindfulness. Is mindfulness. It's an innate quality that you already have, whether you do a meditation practice or not. Mindfulness allows us to gain access to the here and now. It allows us to enter into the present moment and to see into the nature of the present moment, into the nature of our experience. And so even though awareness is innate, unchanging, unconditioned, we still have to train the mind to discover it. We still have to train the mind. And there are kind of three requirements, it seems to me, in discovering it. One is we need interest. We need attention. And we need relaxation. In terms of interest, one shouldn't underestimate how powerful that quality is of interest. 
And that, what I mean by interest is inquiry, the desire to learn, you know, the desire to see, to understand, not to draw conclusions. You know, it's not to draw conclusions. It's not the, the, the desire to have an answer in that sense. It's the desire to look. It's the process of looking itself. You know, deep interest in the here and now. And we need to cultivate that. Zen teacher describes this as beginner's mind. You know, the mind that's looking. You know, when we're looking and learning, we don't know. We don't have the answers. That's the wonderful thing about beginners. You know, I've been teaching beginners in wave awareness and well, beginner workshops coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, another set of beginners. And I love it. You know? I love it because a lot of the beginners understand, a lot of new students understand that they don't know. You know? And my job isn't to get them to know, it's to support that. You know, to support that spirit of not knowing. And it's a wonderful quality. And sometimes, sometimes when you get to be what we around here call old yogi, which has nothing to do with age, um, but it has more to do with the years of experience. Um, you know, sometimes people really have want to be the expert. You know, they they want to they want to be able to know, and not to judge that very harshly. Uh, but there's something lost. You know, and, and so sometimes for old yogis, people who have been practicing for a while, you have to keep reminding yourself to bring fresh, bring a fresh attention to the sitting. You know, don't, don't make assumptions about, well, I know how I sit. I sit for 10 minutes, my mind's wandering, but I work with my breath, and then it gets a little quieter, then I open things up, then I see a few things, and I get caught up, and then I go back to my breath. I know how it's going to go. I know my mind. Well, that's not, the, that's not wise attitude in practice. Okay, that's... that's um, based on the past. Beginner's mind, a very fresh quality uh, of interest. We're just listening, we're receiving, we're open, not knowing. In some ways, content not to know. Set of desperation for answers. So it takes a deep interest to discover the unconditioned. Real genuine earnestness. Another wonderful quality is that, and I feel like at CIMC we're gifted with, with this in our community. I feel like there are so many earnest practitioners. Um, you know, it's very inspiring for me uh, to see that in our community. People really are, you know, people are practitioners, you know, people are interested in the truth. Uh, and that's a, a tremendous power. It's probably the most important thing that we can have uh, to take us through this journey, is that earnestness. It's not grim. Earnestness isn't grim or serious. It's just intent on learning. The second is attention or mindfulness. And again, why mindfulness is so powerful, why it, it's so crucial in this investigation process, in this discovering or movement or inc inclination towards the unconditioned, is because the qualities of mindfulness are very, very similar to awareness. Very, very similar to awareness. There's a freshness. Mindfulness is also free of preconceptions. Okay? It's a kind of attention that doesn't have certain ideas about a particular experience. When we're being mindful of anger, for instance, 
You know, it's just being mindful means this non-judging attention of that particular emotion that's occurring. It's not judging that experience is bad or good or that you shouldn't be angry or that you should be angry or any of those extra add-ons. It's just simply meeting anger and learning from it. You know, as anger expresses itself, how does it express itself? Through the body, heart, temperature, mind is contracted and tight. Mindfulness is just noticing. It's just being aware. It's just being aware. It's allowing us to connect to the here and now, you know, free of ideas about what that experience is all about. It's really at the cutting edge of that don't know mind. It brings us in touch with that. It allows us to do that. Instead of the don't know mind or the clear mind or beginner's mind as being an ideal, it's very accessible. You know, sometimes when we talk about the unconditioned, you know, in this path, in, in this tradition, it's like it's this, you know, way thing, way off there somewhere that if you work for 40 years and you become a monk or a nun and you renounce everything, that someday, someday, you might experience or taste nirvana. You know, and it's not that. It's here. You know, it's here in any moment in time. For any of us, we could discover it. You know, we can discover this unconditioned. It's there. You know, it's there. Sure, practice, informal practice, helps a great deal, without a doubt, you know, because it's inclining the attention, it's inclining our energy in that direction of looking and investigating, uh, which is crucial. But it's there. It's in the present. It's in the present. It's in the here and now. So mindfulness allows us to open to up, open up to other possibilities of relating to the present. You know? Instead of through our conditioned thinking, instead of always bringing the past into the present, and that's the limitation of thought, is that it's conditioned by the past and we bring it in and we experience the here and now, whether it's a relationship you're in, whether it's work, whether it's in, when you're driving. You know, a lot of our experience or, or, or the way we're experiencing things that are going on around us, a lot of the way our reactions are conditioned by our past, the kinds of things that we learned the aversion that we might experience, the greed. It's conditioned from the past. Well, mindfulness allows us to go into the here and now, to drop all that, and to just be with things as they are. Because it's open-hearted. It's not judgmental. It's open-hearted. It's that self-acceptance you know, that's very crucial uh, to inquiry. Let's see. There's another quote here. So what we're saying is to begin to let go of preoccupations in the mind, the preoccupation of thought. One essential uh, aspect of that journey, one quality we want to cultivate is mindfulness. And of course, mindfulness allows us to free ourselves up of these preoccupations. And here's uh, something that Maharaj, great Hindu uh, yogi, when the mind is kept away from its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. In other words, when, we be, when we're paying attention, when we're being mindful and not preoccupied in thought. If you do not disturb this quiet and stay in it, sustaining the mindfulness, you find that it is permeated with the light and the love you have never known. And yet, yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. 
Once you have passed through this experience, you will never be the same person again. The unruly mind may break its peace and obliterate its vision, but it is bound to return, provided the effort is sustained. Until the day when all bonds are broken, delusions and attachments end, and a life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. A life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. The silence of mindfulness brings us there. It allows us to make that discovery. Finally, I wanted to take a couple minutes to talk about relaxation. So we talked about sort of the requirements for discovering the unconditioned. One is interest and investigation. One is practical, it's being mindful, you know, paying attention to the present moment, something that we all can do. Just every moment that you sit on the cushion, and you know that you're sitting on the cushion, every moment that you're aware of a sensation or a thought, you're inclining in that direction of discovering the unconditioned. You're resting in the here and now without preconceptions. Opens us up to that power that's behind thought. Relaxation is another important aspect of the path. And of course, once again, mindfulness helps facilitate this process of relaxation. In fact, the the discovery of the unconditioned really comes about through a process of relaxation. And it's the relaxation, a very gradual process of relaxing on deeper and deeper levels. One, it can be relaxation of the body, Another level might be the relaxation of equanimity or non-reactivity, you know, developing an inner balance or inner poise, an inner strength and confidence that comes from not being overwhelmed by experience. And so we begin to relax, get a sense that we can meet what arises in, in our lives you know, with some awareness and with some compassion. You know, that relaxation of that confidence, that sense of inner poise and inner strength that comes out of practice. But also on another level is the relaxation of non-grasping. That's the unconditioned, the realization of non-grasping. And it's relaxed. It's non-grasping. Okay? It's, it's, it's a state of non-aversion or non-greed. You know, state of non-aversion or non-greed. In the key in relaxing the body and relaxing the mind is the attitude in which we bring to our practice. It's the attitude. And the attitude that is wise, skillful, useful in discovering the end condition is, of course, the attitude of acceptance, the attitude of allowing, that is the attitude of being open-hearted with yourself. Whatever your experience is, whatever conditions you're dealing with within your body-mind process, to be allowing of that. doesn't mean that you're resigned to it. It's an attitude of allowing, of making room, giving space for the experience just as it is, not as it should be, not as it could be. It's also an attitude of practicing without a particular agenda can't emphasize this too much. It's practicing without 
an agenda. And that's the trickiest thing to do. So tricky for our minds. Our thinking minds don't let us do that. Our thinking minds always create an agenda. When we sit, we want something to happen. And we get very attached to it. And it creates tension in the mind when we have an agenda. If we can actually just sit with an attitude, if we could adopt this attitude, practice you can. If one adopts this attitude that when I sit, whatever arises is okay. Whatever arises is okay. 100% okay. My practice is to simply be mindful of what arises. So my effort isn't to have a particular experience. You know, not even attaching to the agenda of being mindful. Okay? Just be with things as they are and pay attention. If we, if we can cultivate that attitude, we let go of an enormous amount of suffering. Enormous amount of suffering. And we're able to see things so much more clearly you know, when we're allowing what things are. So this attitude of not having an agenda, not putting expectations on yourself, not putting those demands on how it is supposed to be. If we can drop that, if we can let that go, if we can remind ourselves to do that, a lot of space and relaxation arises in the mind. A lot of freedom. We let go of a lot of the judgments about the boredom or the restlessness or the sleepiness or the aches and pains or the wandering mind or the planning mind. We can let go of all our judgments about whether it should be there or shouldn't be there and realize my only job is to simply be aware of what's arising. You know, it's not to have something special arise. In fact, that whole concept of something special, you know, awareness of the unconditioned is not special. In fact, another description of it is the ordinary mind. It's the ordinary. It's ordinary because it's there. It's innate. It's unconditioned. It's unchanging. It's ordinary. It's not special. It's not something just for certain kinds of people. <coughs> it's ordinary. So getting in touch with the ordinariness of your experience and being okay with that. You know, being or- just getting in touch with the discontent that might arise and not pushing it away, not getting rid of it, not having holding all sorts of ideas about how it is supposed to be. So let me finish uh, with one more quote. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. Which one? lost my page. One sec. We might have to live without tomato tonight. (laughs) He's a very wonderful teacher. He may actually come next year. Okay, here we go. 
quickly. Knowing conditions and the unconditioned. We must recognize our fears and perceptions as conditionings, not ultimate truths. In spiritual development, we're getting to the point of balance, where we recognize the conditions of the mind simply as conditions. That is, they begin and end. Whether they are mental or physical, whether they are subject or object, they all have the same characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. The unconditioned is something you can't conceive because conceptions are all conditions. It's something that has to be known directly. Nibbana is the unconditioned. So when we say we are inclining towards Nibbana, we mean towards the unconditioned. Now what is the unconditioned? You can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, hear it, or think it. Yet it's where all conditions merge. It's not a sense. It is peace. It doesn't arise or pass away, begin or end. It's from there that all conditions arise. When you're bringing things up into consciousness and allowing them to cease, they cease in the unconditioned. The goal then, or the aspiration, is to recognize and know conditions as conditions, and the unconditioned as the unconditioned. The aspiration is to be that knowing. In other words, the aspiration is to be mindful. It's not just a belief. It's something you have to do for yourself. No one can do it for you. And Buddhism is a vehicle, a convention to help you break through the delusions and find release from the mortal condition as you realize the unconditioned, the deathless state. So the aspiration really comes down to being mindful and then things take care of themselves. Okay, so let's just uh, sit for a minute. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings live in safety. May all beings be free from all forms of suffering. Thank you. And um, start questions in about a minute. So feel free to leave if you want to or need to. Long tonight, you know, maybe about 20 minutes. So, but uh, feel free.
I probably shouldn't have a question and answer period today, talking about the unconditioned, but uh, feel free. Yeah, Bob. Um, of those three qualities, uh, two of them it seems like you can sort of do. You can, you can, you know, you can um, steer the mind towards uh, attention and steer the mind towards relaxation. Yeah. But interest doesn't feel like you can kind of make yourself interested. Yeah. Um, so how 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 do you increase one's interest level? It doesn't feel like it, it comes from a different place. Yeah. Well, a lot of times, I mean, it's true for me anyways, and a lot of times it's, it's insight into the first noble truth is what generates interest. In other words, one's suffering. In other words, why, why did you, you know, you have interest. You know, you wouldn't be doing this. You wouldn't subject yourself to all these retreats you've done and everything that you've done and all the things you have to sit with, the sleepiness, the boredom, and all of that, if there wasn't a sense that there's suffering and that there's potential for not suffering. Um, and so interest is, is remembering that, reflecting on suffering, I feel like is a very useful uh, way to generate interest. One reflection that I use a lot, I probably have this reflection, I go at least once a day, where I realize that um, this could be it, you know, this could be my last day on, on the planet, you know, this, this, you know, this, Life is changing. It's very unpredictable. And death can come at any time. And I see that around me, and I see that in the world. And that generates interest for me, to pay attention. You know, the interest is really to pay attention and to, to bring that attention, uh, certain intensity to the attention in the here and now. And so I think a lot of it comes out of that insight into suffering. But people have different motives or what generates interest. But that, I feel like, that insight is a, is a crucial one um, because that's, a lot of times, is what's going to motivate us to pay attention. Um, two things. What you just said about the, this could be my last day, I'm aware of that. Is that for you based on fear? Because when I do that, um, around the idea that other people could die, like my parents, or people I love, or people, you know, to me that's, that is very effective, but mm -hmm. it's fear. It's like, I become yeah. really fearful, and then I'm like, oh. But right. I, I do become, I guess, awake or mindful in a sense. Right. Um, so that was the first question I had. Okay. Um, well, you know, it's a reflection that I don't necessarily give to everybody, mm -hmm. because I do think that it depends on the person. Mm -hmm. And it, to me, it's pretty understandable that it would generate fear. It can generate fear, especially when you imagine losing somebody, you know, somebody close, um, that can generate a lot of fear. Um, sure, yeah, sure, definitely. <laughs> no doubt. Don't, don't leave yourself out in that one. Right, right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it can. Um, but, you know, I think that it's a reality. It's a reality. And so to me, um, it's important to face that fear. You know, and to work with that fear in a skillful way. You know, in other words, you can kind of push that thought out of your head. And it's not to say that you should always be thinking about it. I'm not saying that, suggesting that. But the reality is that this could happen, right? We both agree on that. Um, and yes, it brings up fear. And certainly sometimes it probably brings that up for me too, if I think about losing somebody really close to me. But then what I see is, is that my job isn't so much to deny that reality 
It's to work with the fear that's coming up. And so there are skillful ways of working with that fear um, so that the mind regains its balance so that it can actually live with that reality, you know, without fear um, or with less fear. Well, it's, it's, it's a question of not being lost or caught in the energy of fear. You know, in other words, fear can arise, but then we get caught by it. You know, and fear is, of course, based on, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's looking into the future and imagining something, right? So, so it's a kind of energy that's very contracted and very tight. And so one way of doing it is bringing mindfulness to that experience of fear itself. In other words, we could get caught by that fear and then push those thoughts away. They're generating that fear, push that condition away. Um, that's not so skillful. More skillful is, is that you deal with things as they are, but then you also work with the fear through being mindful. There's metta practice, that is cultivation of loving kindness, and that's a way of um, generating unconditional love, and that brings the mind more into balance. In fact, the Buddha taught that as the classic antidote to fear. In other words, when, when fear is arising, one can do metta practice. Uh, or when aversion is in the mind, like a lot of anger or impatience or fear, one can cultivate metta, and it helps bring the mind more into balance, and it helps us let go of that fear. You know? And so, so working with fear is really important. It's an important part of the practice. Um, so, you know, because denial is kind of another form of fear. You know? But then when, it, when the reality of it, or like this thought that makes it more real, comes up, well, then we can try to push it down. Um, but... It, to me, it's more skillful to realize that life is short or whatever, and then deal with the, the ripples from that, which is that we're conditioned to be afraid of that fact a lot. We're conditioned to be afraid of impermanence a lot of times. But, then, but we don't want to deny the fact that things are changing or that the world is in permanent place, but we can also work with those, our reactions to that fact. And so, so I feel like when, when one is in relationship with others and... Uh, it's important to work with that energy of fear around loss, you know, because it, it can create a lot of suffering even in the present moment. You know, it isn't just doesn't just arise when the person when we are in the process of losing the person or when we lose it. We live with it, you know, and it creates a lot of tension in the mind. So that's, you know, I, I teach a practice group every winter. This isn't a plug, but you know, it, it's a lot around. I introduce a lot of practices in terms of working with fear. You know, so if one has a lot of fear in one's life, or one sees that one is, a lot of our thoughts or our actions are conditioned by fear, it's very helpful to have that insight or awareness of fear, because uh, it's a very predominant energy. You know, it influences a lot of our choices and thinking and all that. So it's 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 better to face the fear or to learn to work with it in a way. And there are ways that one can develop calm in the face of fear, and there's ways of developing insight in working with fear. But it, it needs to be taken up. If that's the case. Okay. Regarding your term interest, um, how do you separate that from curiosity, from drive, from greediness? You mean in terms of learning, like greed that way, or yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 well, you know, interest can lead to striving. You know, there can be, and and that's why a balanced effort is really important in practice. Um, because striving creates a lot of tension. But often striving isn't so based on learning as much as we have a particular agenda. Like, in other words, we can be attached to learning. You know? Like, one can get attached to insights, having insights. There's nothing wrong with the insights. 
but it's the attachment to the insights that create a lot of problems. And that's definitely true for meditators who, who are along the way, is that one could have an insight but get very attached to it, or get very attached to having a particular insight that you've read about or heard about, or you know it's out there, and you haven't had it yet. And you, get very, you can get very attached to that, and that's that agenda piece. And that creates a lot of tension in the mind, and it creates a lot of striving. And the striving is counterproductive, because inevitably the striving mind leads to discouragement, disappointment, self-doubt, and a lessening of effort, you know, one way or the other. So, so finding that balance effort between striving and being too lax, like not putting any effort to pay attention at all. Um, we want to find that balanced effort. So when we notice that we're tight in our practice, or we're feeling discouraged or frustrated in that, a lot of times what that's, what that's coming out of is that's, a, that's a, uh, a pointer to the fact that we have a particular agenda. And so we're being frustrated because things are not unfolding according to schedule or according to our agenda. Okay. Sounds like money. What's that? <laughs> what do you mean? Your, your analogy for attachment to insight? Sure. It, well, it applies to anything, actually. It's like money is a good thing, right? If we all like money. It's a good thing. Uh, we need it. Uh, but the attachment to it can cause a lot of suffering and it can create a lot of unskillful actions. You can see that with anything. You know, you, even the attachment to enlightenment, again, the same thing. It's, not, it's nothing wrong. Or the attachment to nibbana, or attached to, attachment to awareness, the unconditioned, causes suffering. Without a doubt, I've seen it. You know? So that, you know, that attachment causes the suffering. And so enlightenment, or the unconditioned, is the non-grasping of the mind. You know, it's non-attaching. So it's a, including it's a, it's to a learning. Weird line to walk. Correct. It's, it's, um, Correct. You know, how do you maintain interest and not be grasping? Well, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I didn't say it was easy. I never once said tonight that it was easy, did I? <laughs> I don't think so. I want. I very rarely will ever say say it's easy. Uh, yeah. A couple of points, but on the point of this thing with the interest, I mean, uh, you said something that was the answer that I thought of when the person asked the question. I mean, it's the suffering that we go through. It's the second arrow that we're throwing into ourselves. Sure. At least speaking for me. Right. I mean, you know, I know that I have things that happen in my life that would happen to anybody else. They would feel disconcerted, sad, unhappy because of an occurrence. But sometimes it's the way you pick up that occurrence and you travel with it within your mind, talking, dialogue, all the things that I'm sure you can describe better than I that go on, that give you that second arrow. Right. So like I once said to a priest, he said to me, geez, you've been coming to the monastery and going to communion for quite a long time. I said, you know, quite a long time I've noticed I've been coming quite a while. It's when you'd be surprised how pain and suffering drives me to God. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Right, you know, exactly. I'm trying to get some relief or something, you know? Yeah. And the same thing with the interest. I mean, uh, this morning I, I had a big episode at my house and I, and I completely lost, you know, lost it in the moment. And I mean, I have a lot of interest to find out why, you know, I, you know, got so excited and angry yeah. and yeah. fearful. And I have a question about that, but I mean, the interest is really in the self-development. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, now you exactly. Like, I'm mm -hmm. not attached mm -hmm. to sitting down in the kitchen saying, "Well, I'm going to be looking for an insight in a particular area tonight, or any specific insight." Mm -hmm. But I'm very attached to finding insights. Mm -hmm. Right. And I couldn't be dissuaded by <laughs> any guru not to try to find an insight. You know what I mean? Well, that's good. You know I mean? Find I'm out. Not attached to down on find the out room. for yourself. Yeah. That's all. No, right. Exactly. Started, that's what the Buddha said. I started with Marianne on 
on the, on the method. Yeah. And, you know, you pause, and so you pause, and may, may I have mental happiness? So, and the point, so then you suddenly have a little voice that says, well, what is mental happiness? You need to pause a bit. You don't just mouth the phrases mm -hmm. and right. move on. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly the little insights come up. So a big thing for me is anxiety. Mm -hmm. Now, mental, ha mental happiness would be, would be a, a situation where we're freed from anxiety. Free from anxiety. Another one came up. Fear came up. Mm -hmm. And two or three things came up. Yeah. And as I meditated on every one of those meta things, mm -hmm. pausing, yeah. those little insights came up. Mm -hmm. Good. To me, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying mm -hmm. to improve mm -hmm. our life mm -hmm. to be on the second path, the second mm -hmm. noble truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that there can be an end to stuff. That's third, but yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, second is the cause, the origin. The suffering, the origin of suffering. That there in, is suffering. They can, they, that there is a cause, cause of suffering. suffering. And then there's liberation, yeah, right, yeah, the end. An end. And then there's a path, exactly. Path. Right, path. exactly. I don't know, I may be just right. right. <laughs> the, the, uh, I do know. Um, okay. Wrapping it up, yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh, Good. This morning, something happened on my property. Mm -hmm. Cut right to the chase. Okay. I had extrapolated these people on my property to this easement that's along my, my, my house, mm -hmm. and I'm going to lose it, and I've extrapolated this into the worst possible scenario right. of the what-ifs. Right. And I realized that in my life, you talked about this earlier mm -hmm. in your talk, mm -hmm. this what-ifing right. to the negative. Mm -hmm. What right. drives that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a good answer to what drives my interest, mm -hmm. but I have no answer as to what driving me to think that this fellow was plotting and planning. They may have just been yeah. coming on there as surveyors because there's a there's a there's a, a stone there that, that the county put years ago that you measure from. You see what I mean? But I've already extrapolated it to something very bad, and there's and that's only right. one circumstance. Right. What what's the driver of that kind of thing, well, or is that for another? Yeah. Time? Now, briefly. I'll say what I'd say is it's, a, it's the conditioning. In other words, we interpret a particular event or an activity or some right. action that's happening around us and we're conditioned to respond. Right. And in this case, what this might be triggering is anxiety for you, right. um, you know, or anger. Um, and so we're conditioned to respond to that particular activity. Whereas if there's awareness, you know, there's more balance in the mind. And so we're much more likely, because there's more balance and less conditioned reactivity, we're much more likely to respond with some degree of wisdom or perspective, sometimes of the significance of certain activities that we have a tendency to overreact usually in certain situations or react in a very negative way. Whereas with awareness, there's more space in the mind. So that opens up a chance for saying, okay, you know, this isn't what I like, but you know, what's the impact on my happiness going to be? And, and all of that. So awareness brings in the bigger picture, whereas our reaction conditioning often will see the worst you know, case scenario, or we over-signify um, certain experiences. You know, we give too much significance to a lot of experiences that are basically not the end of the world. Well, this was a unique experience, and I won't go into it. It was very okay. unique, and it was a one-of-a-kind. It isn't a kind that the response might have been... This was a unique experience, and I will just say in passing something that Narian laughed about. Mm -hmm. I've actually developed a thing called reactivity alerts. Mm -hmm. You know? It's like you have a thought and suddenly you feel a slight panic and yeah, you, say, yeah. you say reactivity alert uh -huh. and then you become immediately, you know, immediately, when I say it as a joke to myself because it makes me laugh. Yeah, 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 and good. it's hard to be angry and fearful and anxiety. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I like that. You know, I like reactivity it. alert and you say, 
Yeah, I like it. Uh, that's good. Yeah, and it's just making aware of it in the moment. Right, that's bringing you're awareness. It Correct. And, and right. Good, you. good. Perfect. <laughs> Till next week. Till next week. <laughs> Till next chapter. Okay. Uh, any other comments or questions? Um, are we there? Question or end? End? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Why don't we just sit for 30 seconds? Thanks, everybody. Have a good night, huh? Take care of yourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.